Wealth is too precious to be entrusted to the rich. To another episode of Drive Back the Night, an Andromeda <gasps> series podcast. Oh boy, I'm not excited. I'm Ethan Meister. We're gonna do this. We're gonna do this show. We're gonna Ryan, be the best show. I can Ryan, jump six feet. Let me at him, huh? Hold on. Yeah. I had four Red Bulls in the fridge. Oh yeah, you had four Red Bulls. You don't have four Red Bulls anymore, oh, let me tell crap. you. Oh, Ryan. Oh, man, I'm really excited. Let's get this show. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> okay. All right. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Calm. Calm down. I, I think we need to take a pause for a little while, okay? okay. Yeah, just take I, a break. I'm just going to hit the pause button. Okay, I'm going to have another Red Bull. No, you're not. We're pausing. And we're back. Uh, are you okay, Ryan? Oh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Is there something you would like to say for all of us? Yes. Okay, I had too many... Re- I normally don't ever drink any of those energy drinks, and I, I got a little carried away. I do apologize, especially to you, Ethan. You're the one that has to, that's had to deal with me, so. There's a two-can limit. Oh, yeah, I, I blew it. And you can only mix them with vodka. Oh, okay. Good to know. <laughs> I'm Ethan Maestri, and joining me at the mic now, after coming off the Red Bull High, is... I'm Ryan Mazzocco. Yeah. Each week, we like to take an episode of Gene Roddenberry's Andromeda and analyze it to see what we like and dislike. This week, we're examining The Pearls That Were His Eyes. You know, Ethan, that title, The Pearls That Were His Eyes, this is now the second week in a row that we're having a Shakespeare reference. You're absolutely right. Uh, that sounds like a fun fact. Is it a fun fact? It is. I'm sorry, am I am I, am I trying? No, no am problem. I... No apology okay. necessary in this case. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll go ahead and go through that. Yeah, go ahead. Lay, lay some fun facts on us. There was a lot of stuff for this show uh, that I really enjoyed uh, getting into, mainly concerning the, the actors, the, the guest uh, stars uh, that appeared in this episode. Uh, of course, uh, The Pearls That Were His Eyes was written by Ethel Ann Varr. Um, Peter Kalamis is uh, one of the actors that guests in this uh, show. He played Grask, the Chichen. Is that it, Chichin? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I want to say Chia Pet, but he looks nothing like that. <laughs> no. Uh, the Chichin trader, uh, Grask, uh, that was on board the Andromeda, uh, that was played, by again, by Peter Kalamis. Um, this guy's had an interesting uh, history in acting. Beginning in 89, he started with the Dragon Ball Z series. Interesting to note, IMDb spe- specifically mentions the Canadian version. They all speak English, right? I mean, there is there is French in Quebec, but Canadian television is in English, I do believe, right? Yeah, I would imagine so. Okay, so it, it seemed odd to me that there is a Canadian version of English-speaking television. Is that because they had have to have, like, a? Maybe, and, yeah. <laughs> and some of those Canadian terms that we, well, that we make fun of here in North America? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, anyway, yeah. Or, so, or that, that we admire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah admire. So anyway, yeah, he he got started with the Canadian version of Dragon Ball Z, doing voiceover work for that beginning in 89. Uh, Throughout the early 90s, 91 and 95, he had some uh, small roles in. Once again, here we have the Kamish Connection. 
All right. He was in the commish. He played the caddy in uh, Happy Gilmore. He, he was uh-huh. not not the caddy, um, not the the, the scruffy looking one. Okay. They're, they're, not right. him. Uh, he played Kevin Nealon's caddy. The oh, Kevin okay. Nealon character Potter mm-hmm. was the character's name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the caddy there in Happy Gilmore. Okay. Um, he had several roles in multiple X Files shows throughout the mid nineties. And then in the 2000s, he's done all manner of television and film roles. Most recently, he played Adam Brody in the Stargate Universe television show. So, And then he was also Phil in the movie 50-50. And then most recently, he's done a lot of voiceover work for video games and for animated series uh, throughout television. And, uh, and again, in the video game industry. But this isn't the last that we're going to see of uh, Mr. Kalamas in Andromeda. He's going to return... Uh, for a couple of other roles that we'll talk about as we get to them later in this season one. Oh, really? So we're going to see him a couple more times, yeah. Okay. Uh, then we have Ken Kersinger, and he plays Willie, one of Sid's henchmen, Uncle Sid, that's in mm-hmm. this episode. Uh, he mainly worked as a stuntman in virtually every sci-fi action-adventure movie, uh, basically of the past 20 years. His IMDb list is humongous. Uh, he's worked on the X-Men series of movies, um, I, I had to write it down. Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls. He was, I think they listed him as, that, as a helicopter pilot or something like that. Really? In that movie, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So he was actually listed as, as an actor in that role. Um, and then for a number of, of uh, shows on the X-Files, he worked as the stunt coordinator. Uh, and mainly that's that's his claim to fame is, is doing stunt roles in so much work of the past 20 years. He, too, is going to return to the series in an uncredited role uh, coming up in season five. So when okay. we get to that, hopefully we'll remember to uh, to mention him in this un- future uncredited role that we're going to see him okay. in. And then we have Ty Olson, And this guy, I knew watching the screen, I knew this guy was familiar. I have seen him in other work, in other television and in other movies. And sure enough, he's another one of those that has a huge list uh, in IMDb. He's not new to sci-fi television or the movies. He was in the Chronicles of Riddick. He was in Rise of the Planet of the Apes from 2011. And most recently, we saw him in the 2014 edition of Godzilla. And I, 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 this is what I recognized him being from, because this was the most recent movie that I had seen. He plays Janeway, a scientist, in the, the main control room that's over the, the Muto pod that's growing in the, the nuclear reactor. But anyway, in that scene, he is the, the kind of the, the lead scientist in that control room. So, yeah, no stranger to sci-fi movies. And then, really, he's been all over television since the late 90s. And uh, he, too, is going to return to the Andromeda series after doing this episode. He'll come back in season five as well. Really? Yeah. Okay. So we got a lot of actors that we're, we're seeing them for the first time, perhaps, in this series, in season mm-hmm. one. We're going to continue to see them in, okay. in other roles as well. So that's a joy. Would you, would you talk about Q? I'm just getting to that. And that, of course, is John DeLancey. Oh, okay. Great. And really, do I need to talk about this guy? <laughs> yes, I think you do. Do I really? <laughs> because, I mean, honestly, you, I can't watch him on screen, and no matter what he does. And he, he's been on television since the late 70s. Mm-hmm. But, of course, anytime you see him, the first thing that comes to mind is, as you mentioned, 
Q. Q. Star Trek The Next Generation, D Space Nine, Voyager. If you saw any of those series, you know who John DeLancey is. You, mm-hmm. Even if you know his voice. And curiously enough, he's done a lot of voice work, especially within the last decade. Um, I thought it was particularly interesting. He's done uh, My Little Pony. <laughs> Oh, really? He's done voiceover work for My Little Pony. In fact, there is a song of him singing uh, something about being special. Um, I, I'm, I, I, I can't cue it up right now, otherwise I would have. But uh, yeah, you know, he's, he's just, he's one of those actors that he's done a lot of stuff, but when you see his face and when you hear his voice, instantly you reflect back to Star Trek, if you watched any of the Star Trek series with him in it, with <laughs> as, as the omnipotent Q. Right. But here he plays Uncle Sid in this episode. Also, I didn't know about that, so I'll see if I can find that soundbite of that, and maybe I'll, I'll put it in somewhere in <laughs> Throw post. Throw it in after the credits or so, something. Yeah, yeah okay. we definitely have to get the listeners to, to hear that. So anyway, yeah, that's the, uh, the stars that we have uh, for uh, the pearls that were his eyes. So, yeah, let's uh, let's go ahead and get into what the story was about. Ryan, why don't you give us the summary of the pearls that were his eyes? The Andromeda is heading to El Dorado Drift for much-needed supplies and spare parts. Apparently, their first time in civilization for quite some time as they eagerly await news, weather, and sports. Among the top news items, Transgalactic is merging with Quantum pending approval of the Free Trade Alliance. Becca takes exception to this merger as it would force small operators like herself out of business giving big corporation guys like Transgalactic CEO Sam Prophet a stranglehold on the market. Becca also receives a message from her uncle, Sid. He seems to be in some kind of trouble and needs Becca's help. He calls in a favor owed by Becca's father. Problem is, the message is over three years old. And just to make things interesting, there's also a Class 7 solar storm heading right for them. On the Maru, Becca and Dylan go back and forth a bit, since Dylan wants her to stay and help with the shopping. She says she's going, so that's that. But she'll be back in five days to pilot them out of danger. Becca leaves and Trance tags along, uninvited, but not necessarily unwelcome. Becca and Trance land on the wrong side of town, running into ruffians and flash addicts. They come upon what was supposed to be Sid's address, but find it vacant. Back on Andromeda... Dylan and the crew are going through the attic, basement, and garage looking for anything they can sell in their garage sale to raise funds for the shopping spree. Planet side, Becca begins her search for Uncle Sid, gets into a fight, and finally the big guys decide to take her to him. Sid is surprised to see Becca. He's doing just fine, though. In fact, he is Mr. Sam Prophet. Becca can't believe it. The girls are set up in a penthouse suite with all the amenities they could ask for. Becca can't understand why Sid would sell out, but Sid sees it as his big score. Sid leaves, but comes back later and tries to play catch-up with Becca. She sees through it, though, and says he's fishing, which he is. He finds it strange that she would show up just days before his big merger. Turns out, Becca's dad, Ignatius Valentine, had some info that Sid wants. You know, just personal journals, visual records, that sort of thing. Nothing of any importance. But he's willing to pay Becca 10 million guilders in exchange for it, as well as unlimited credit on the house during her stay. Trance and Becca go out and party. Well, Trance does most of the partying, while Becca just sulks. She can't help but be suspicious of her uncle's kid. She knows there's no way her father's personal journals are worth that kind of money. Back on the Maru, the girls search through the ship's records, trying to find whatever it is that Sid wants. 
She realizes the computer has been tampered with and goes to make a break for it, but the ship is already boarded by Sid's goons. Now Sid's claws come out as he accuses Becca's timing to be too coincidental. He suspects she is there to blackmail him with information that her father had, and just days before his takeover of Quantum. He tells Becca that her father was a flash addict, which, which she denies. Back in the suite, Becca is violently let back in, all bruised and bloodied, where Trance is already waiting. Trance nurses her wounds. Meanwhile, on the Andromeda, Harper has been having a hard time getting the ship back online due to some poor quality parts sold to them by a hideously dishonest creature named Grask. They're dead in the water, with the solar storm coming, but Dylan has a plan. Back in Sid's office, his goons have brought Becca for a little sit-down. He continues to paint Ignatius in a very unfavorable light, trying to get what he wants. But Becca doesn't crack. You know, because she actually doesn't know anything. So Sid decides to put her on a new medical regimen. Flash. Five milligrams today, five milligrams tomorrow, and the next day she'll sell her firstborn just for one milligram more. With her head held in a vice, he uses an eyedropper to administer her first dose of Flash. Becca is brought back to the suite, tweaking from the Flash. She's edgy, paranoid, and easily agitated. She gets into it with Trance, but then calms down, knowing they have to get out of there. Later, after Becca sobers up, Trance uses a console to get a window open, which also gets the attention of Sid's goons. The girls easily take the guys out with a little help from the Force Lance anti-theft system and Trance's tail, and they make their escape to retrieve the Maru's comm gear. Sid is alerted to the escape and has a plan. Meanwhile, Dylan and Rev have retrieved Grask and brought him back to the Andromeda as a solar storm approaches. Now Grask is willing to find a fully functioning, brand new neutrino dampener for the Andromeda. In the suite, Becca and Trance have barricaded themselves inside the room as Becca works on a small device with her knife. They realize that their five days are probably up and they need to get back to the Andromeda ASAP. As Sid's goons approach and blow open the door, Becca activates her device and they jump out the window. No, it wasn't suicide. The Mara was waiting for them right there and they flew off to safety. Except that it was all according to Sid's plan. As they fly back home, Becca tries to put together what information her dad could have had on Sid and where he would have hidden it. She realizes that it was around the same time of their falling out that he had given her special nanobots to change her hair color to red, blonde, or purple, or whatever she wanted. She plucks a hair and plugs it into the computer to reveal a video of dead bodies floating around. Sid was responsible for the massacre. Ignatius had used this against Sid to get a few things until his death. Sid comes on the monitor and tells Becca that he thought his troubles were all over until Becca showed up. Now he's had all the Maru's navigation rigged to fly them straight into the sun to destroy all knowledge and evidence of the event. But Becca tells Sid that she's already beamed the log to the Freelance Courier Co-op and is on its way to every law enforcement agency in the quadrant labeled open immediately upon death. Sid gives her back control of the Maru and lets her go. Becca and Trance make it back to the Andromeda, 36 hours late, but they make it, safe and sound. The end. Um, is, that, is that a slow clap? I am slow clapping, sir. Why? Not one reference to Q oh. in your summary. <laughs> I'm very proud of you. Well, thank you. I'm very proud of you. Thank you.
Yeah, no, that was a, that was a good summary. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. Actually, I had a little bit of trouble putting that one together because I was trying to watch this on an iPad, and all the scenes that had Flash wouldn't show up. <laughs> <laughs> well played, sir. Thank you. Well played. Well played. I genuinely like that joke. <laughs> okay, so I'll go first on the comments here. So, uh, Tyr asked the question, uh, what's a garage? <laughs> uh-huh. well, Dylan recommends, you know, we need to have a garage sale. Tyr's response, what's a garage? Seriously? <laughs> I mean, they know what CDs are. Yeah. 3,000 years <laughs> in the future, of course. Maybe Tyr didn't. Okay. Um, what this tells me is that the Nietzscheans as a culture, mm-hmm. as a society, have no concept of what good music is mm-hmm. and where it's created. Yeah. That's just, that's that's what I took from that. Okay. Because, I mean, seriously, come on, garage. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, where do they park their land speeders? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I just thought that comment was a little, ah, really? Yeah, I know. I was thinking, well, you know what? The the Andromeda has several of them. They're called shuttle bays. Yeah, shuttle bays, hangars, yeah. garage. Mm-hmm. It's all the same concept. Right. Um, if, if Dylan knows what one is and he's only 300 years behind the rest of them in 300 years, seriously, the term garage just disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and is, is garage the only kind of sale that Tyr doesn't know about? I mean, has he, has he heard of a, of a yard? Has he heard of a sidewalk? What, how is he going to react when he hears the term flea market? Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was nice to see that even 3000 years in the future, People are still going to have trouble knowing or deciding what stays and what goes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because that is, isn't that the eternal struggle? Oh, yeah. When you have a garage sale? Oh, yeah. Letting this go? Oh, yeah. How often have you let something go that three months later you're like, I'm mm-hmm. an idiot? And it's not just the internal struggle. You know, you also got the rest of the family you're you're fighting over it with, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, the, and the wife the- is just ready to put everything out there. Like, no, 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 I need that. Yeah. And then you've got the yahoos that you're having to argue with at the garage sale <laughs> that want that want this thing. You've got it marked for a dollar. You paid fifty. Yeah, you yeah. got it marked for a dollar. They want to get it for fifty cents. I don't know. That's just too much. <laughs> I just ah. Uh. Yeah. Now uh, this is this may be just a little bit nitpicky, but there was one thing that kind of just it annoyed me a little bit was uh, Sid's henchmen. They really just seemed. So happy to be doing their job. <laughs> Anytime they got to tase somebody or, or hit somebody, they they laughed. They they look at each other like. <laughs> yeah, you made the comment about um, in, in a previous episode about the the the, the bully. As he's shaking the change out of your pants. You made that comment uh-huh. about it. These are those guys. Yeah. These yeah. literally are the those guys that laugh as they're shaking you down. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, you know, there was the the main one. Yeah. Uh, I think his name was Mick. Yes. Yeah. He just seemed really, there toward the end when they were making their break, he seemed really excited to turn that force lance on Becca. And I'm wondering... He'd been waiting a long time for that. That's what he said. <laughs> And I'm like, why are you wanting to kill this girl? You know that she's valuable to your boss. Yeah. But he was just, man, he was ready. Oh, yeah. Yeah, chomping at the bit. Did he ever take his sunglasses off? (laughs) Did any of them ever take their sunglasses off? Yeah, I think they, yeah, I think they did at some points. Because I'm I'm almost, maybe I need to go back and look, and I I probably should have. 
I'm going to venture that we never saw Mick with his glasses off. I'm thinking that guy is on Flash constantly. Oh, yeah? That's that's kind of, that's what I'm going with. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe yeah, that's, that's why he's so giddy. Yeah, they're 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 a little on edge. Or... Uh, let's talk about this for a second, because I feel like we have to. Okay. Uh, I made a comment uh, in, in a previous episode, maybe one or two episodes back, about how Becca, they, they kind of got her hair and the makeup and the, the mm-hmm. wardrobe right. Yeah. Let's talk about Becca. <clears throat> In boxers and combat boots for just a second. <laughs> All right. Let's talk okay. about that. All right. For one, uh, you know, I am a man of a certain age. I, I'm closing in on 40. Mm-hmm. So the 90s for me, uh, that was my decade. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that I grew up in that decade. Mm-hmm. So the combat boots and and short skirts or short shorts, whatever, they, they get in a tank top. Mm-hmm. That's a look. Yeah. That, that I have an appreciation for. Um. I'm not going to say that it was a good look for her, mm-hmm. but I, I liked it. I, I'm just going to say that out loud. All right. I liked it. Okay. <laughs> and, 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 and looking back on it, it is so dated. Mm-hmm. It is so 90s. Mm-hmm. And, and this is being recorded in 2000, 2001 when this episode is being made. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it was a year or two before the 2000s kind of shook off the 90s. Um. And, and as I looked at it, my first response was, oh, God, you know, how old is this episode again? Uh-huh. But then at the same time, as I'm watching, I'm just like, yeah, you know, I I, 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 I dug that that look. See, what does that say about me then that I didn't even notice it as being a 90s look? I was just like, yep, that's how people dress. <laughs> it didn't even phase you at all, did no, it? No, not really. Okay. No. So, so you're saying it was acceptable? You were okay with it. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go out like that, but yeah. <laughs> well, uh, my first thought when I saw it was the scene in Ace Ventura. You know, we mentioned when Nature Calls earlier, but in the original Ace Ventura, when he comes out with the tutu, yeah, the ballerina tutu, right, and the combat and the, boots and his getup, you right, know? And the, yeah, that's what I flash back to immediately. <laughs> because all through the middle '90s, that's what you saw. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't. I'm not saying it came from Ace Ventura. It's just that's the first time the the boots and that and shorts, that look, <laughs> kind of struck me. It was humorous then. Then it kind of became fashion. Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing it and, and seeing it in a in a show from 2000. It, at first, it was just like, whoa, yeah, they really are dating. But they've already done CDs, so I mean, yeah, we know what yeah. we're getting. Mm-hmm. And and taking that into into consideration, yeah. She pulls it off. Lisa Ryder looks good in combat boots and silk boxers. All right. I'm just going to say that out loud. Okay. I appreciate the production design, the the, the costumers that, mm-hmm. that, that said, yeah, let's go with that. You know, another interesting design aspect that I thought was interesting was the fact that in, in this set, they actually used uh, furniture made out of real wood. The desk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I say that sort of kind of as a joke, really, because not, not necessarily that, they, that the, the set designers used, but just the fact that Trance brings attention to that. Yeah. Hey, look, real wood. So you're on the ship of the line, the Andromeda. Um, evidently, everything that is on that ship is synthetic. Composites or, yeah, uh, something of mm-hmm. manufactured. Yeah. So to to see something that is uh, actually organic, something that actually came out of the ground, it's something that is noteworthy to them. Yeah. They actually have to point it out. 
and mention it. Well, yeah, and I think it's 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 great because it's such a simple thing to do. Because I mean, you think about being the the planet that they're on. What what was the planet? I forget the name of it. They said it a, a time or two when she's leaving the Andromeda. They say what planet she's going to, where Uncle Sid is at. Uh, yeah, I don't remember. Well, in, in any case, this planet. Um, I don't know if you noticed it. The cutscenes main, mainly all we see of the planet is them in the in the streets, you know, mm-hmm. in the, the the section where they're looking for Uncle Sid. And then I guess they they show up there again in that square or whatever it is when they're partying, mm-hmm. as you mentioned in the summary. Uh, the external views of the transgalactic building. Mm-hmm. If you look at the background, well, there's not really that much to look at. It's mainly just green fog. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, it looks like it's a planet that's maybe engineered. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It doesn't look like there's much by way of wildlife. So we have this building. They're in there. And it's so easy for production to put a, a wooden desk in there. And suddenly for people that are around composites and, and manufactured synthetic things suddenly real wood oh my gosh this is a luxury this guy's got money you mm-hmm. know and i think that you know it's, it's really good for establishing that fact this is somebody that has some affluence has mm-hmm. some coin or gilders right. and, and is and is able to spend them on the finer things and we see that later when they're talking about the orange juice right. and yeah. things like that too yeah it has to be it has to be shipped in so i think it's great yeah. that the production uh, crew uses things that are readily available because their budget is kind of limited. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to mention, something that we learned about a character, uh, Trance's tail is not only cute, but it's functional. Um, she can use it as a weapon, and she can also console others with it. This is the first time that we... St- <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is the first time we see it used as basically an appendage, Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. Normally, just kind of just follows her around and yeah, kind of limp, mm-hmm. whatnot. Now, the, it was interesting how they used the CG effects to uh, to get the tail involved in the storytelling. And then also uh, Becca, uh, we see her fight. She she really gets into a street fight. Yes, she does, and uh, she handles herself quite well, doesn't she? Yes, she does with Trance's help. But she was doing quite well herself too. So. Yeah. Um, that, that actually does bring up an observation that I had too, because that sequence, uh, we get several, one of several of Becca's tough girl lines for this episode. Did you count how many there were? <laughs> Cause I did. Okay. <laughs> and, and actually it was that scene that you bring up there, mm-hmm. the, the fight with the, the goons. She pulls out the, 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 the force lance. And the guy says, what's that? And he, she says, sugar cane. And then <laughs> proceeds to, you know, wipe the floor with him. Right. But we also had several others. Uh, she references uh, Sid. Uh, he's goading her on. She tells him, drop dead. Mm-hmm. And then we also have uh, kiss this. <laughs> as she uh, punches uh, Mick uh-huh. in the groin. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we had three nice, you know, real solid tough girl lines for Becca in this one. It's something else that I thought was interesting about that that first fight scene. Of course, they were backed into a corner, but I thought it was interesting, uh, maybe something we can get from Becca's character. She threw the first punch. And Han shot first. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that pops to mind. Well, we talked about her being the female Han Solo. Mm-hmm. I mean, not that I'm saying she shouldn't have, but, I mean, she, they were definitely... Well, they, it was they three were, on yeah. one. They, they, and they were cornered. 
Yeah. She, everyone knew that something was about to go down. But uh, I, I kind of wonder if, if someone like, say, Dylan, if he was in that situation, even if it was four on one, would he have taken the first punch? Or would he have waited for someone else to do something, then he ducks, and then he takes them all out? You know, that's a, that's a good, that's an interesting thought. Because now that I'm thinking, now that we're thinking about this, we haven't seen any situation yet in which Dylan has shot first, have we? Not, not that comes to mind. And mainly, I'm just thinking of interactions of other ships with the Andromeda, and mm-hmm. when Dylan is in command. In all of those instances, somebody has attacked them first mm-hmm. before Dylan has ordered, you know, fire weapons. Mm-hmm. He's usually holding Tear back because Tear wants to fire first. Oh yeah, but uh, yeah, so that's interesting that that Becca would take the first action. In that instance, yeah, she she doesn't follow her uh, her commander or, or Captain Hunt's uh, mm-hmm. lead, yeah. for example, on that. But I mean, it also kind of shows the the dynamic there between the two because they're both. Well, Hunt is the captain, so he is clearly the leader. But they also look up to Becca as a leader. Yeah, and the way that she used to fly, well, things were a little more freestyle with her, and. Dylan's a lot more uh, yeah, military. And- you're right. It just seems to me, though, that with the the Maru, she strikes me as being a little more cautious about putting herself in into dangerous situations. Uh, obviously, that doesn't play out in this case. I mean, because they walk, mm-hmm. you know, basically right into the <laughs> into the, the the three goons right there. And yeah, her back's against the wall, so she. She goes. She goes into tough girl mode. Well, maybe part of her experience in the Maru is uh, it taught her to to be aggressive, take chances, because because she was uh, smaller in the Maru. Yeah. Not that she can't take care of herself, because we can clearly see that she's very tough. But you know, just that time on the Maru, I've always kind of I don't know. Maybe she's you just gotta you gotta take chances sometimes. You gotta be more aggressive. You gotta be a little more crazy than your opponent. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Now, because I've heard people say, this is something that obviously Dylan didn't do, but I've heard people say that, like, when, if someone goes into prison, um, if they go and go in solitude or something, and just, or just keep to themselves, try to not make any trouble, those first few nights can be really rough for them. It's the ones who come out, make a lot of noise, and just, they act crazy, and people just don't mess with them. Yeah. Maybe Becca heard that story. Well, it's like, was it? It, when when we come when it comes down to it, Becca's got the street smarts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she know. Yeah, if I'm gonna put Dylan versus Becca in a, you know, uh, a back alley somewhere, I I might just take Becca over over Dylan. You mentioned street smarts, which is exactly why Dylan didn't want her to go, because he wanted her street smarts to be there on his side for the trade mission. Yeah, yeah. And then in, um, here's another character point. Over the last few episodes, we've had a lot of discussions about Rami, and a lot of things that really seem to be conflicting doesn't seem like it would be part of her programming. Um, This was another one for me that was kind of hard. She's having trouble letting go of the the Than ceremonial china. Yeah. Yeah, I I thought that was an odd play. Mm -hmm. That whole sequence was just kind of odd for her as a character. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, she's having a hard time separation anxiety, I guess, mm-hmm. with the, the China. Uh, there's also that moment where Dylan sends the card away with the personal effects in it. And Harper's like, what did I do? Or what did I say? Mm-hmm. And, and she has that moment where she's like, 
she just reaches out and he just kind of touches his shoulder and has that look like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. all of that just seemed kind of out of place for her character. Yeah. And then it goes back to the, the question again of, is it Rami, the android and this personality that she is taking on being this avatar for the ship? Or is it the Andromeda Ascendant itself that is having these these different issues? Because I, a part of me, I want to lean towards saying that this is the development of Andromeda in the flesh. This is the development of the Avatar. This is not the ship. This is part of the ship, but it's the Avatar that's developing this personality, developing this these different aspects of her personality as far as uh, being able to be compassionate and to be um, willing to negotiate. You know, the ship wants to fight. Yeah. Okay, and now we've seen where Rami, not necessarily all the time, wants to fight. In this case, however, it doesn't make sense to me, because she's so attached to this this China, this stuff. When did she, as the Avatar, ever use it? Yeah, Wow, we could really maybe, start going Maybe in. they used it with the Castilians. <laughs> Did they reuse those props? I mean... <laughs> I don't remember seeing those on the table. Yeah, uh, I don't know. We could really go a long way with this discussion. Um, here's the thing. I, I want to know this. Does does the Avatar have a room? Does it have quarters? Uh, Where does know. it go she, when it's not yeah. on the command deck? Or is it always on the command deck? She probably doesn't bunk with Harper. Probably not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um so is there uh, like a, a broom closet or something that it goes into and shuts down and, and mm-hmm. jacks itself into the wall or something like that? It's, there's a lot of unanswered questions about this avatar, about this ship in the flesh, that really need to be... I I, I feel like we, we need to have something that addresses this uh, in a little bit more detail. Mm-hmm. We need to see quarters or we need to see... What happens to this thing when it's not interacting with the crew? And, and and yeah, how much of this is the ship? How much of it is is programming that's been developed for the Avatar or that the ship is shunting into the Avatar? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's taking on more of the diplomacy and the, you know, more of the protocols for interaction with the crew and things like that. And the ship is less and less having to to deal with those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, there's just a lot of stuff about that that character that we don't really have any answers for yet. And so when we see a situation like what what you're just talking about, it uh, it raises more questions than it answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does. All right, so let's let's get a little bit more into the show itself mm-hmm. and what it's teaching us about the the universe that we're in. I, I had an observation about mail call. And returning to civilization. Mm-hmm. You know, we had that at the very beginning of the show. Yeah. Everybody was looking forward to getting news of what's going on in the galaxies. Um, I guess what I take away from this, there is no subspace communication, is there? There's no relay stations. There's no faster than light communication mm-hmm. for the ship, is there? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think we're so used to uh, things like Star Trek. Yeah. Where these are technologies they have, and it's just commonplace. You assume... What, what's one of the things that we take take for granted in the modern age? Instant communication. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We are instantly able to communicate with anyone, anywhere that we want to communicate with. Yeah. And that's something that apparently doesn't exist in this galaxy. That's, that's what I'm taking away from this. Mm-hmm. 
because they're waiting to get in range of, you know, whatever relay so they can get updated information. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about the physics of it. I guess they'll get information anywhere where they're at, but it's been traveling at light speed for however many hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. They can pick up all of that anytime they want. But to get current information... They have to be in a range of a certain star or a certain relay station, I guess, mm-hmm. before they get that information. Yeah. I thought that was a really cool concept because they can zip around the galaxy using Slipstream, but you know that's you, you can't communicate that same way. You can't use that same avenue to, to communicate. And that is their only method of, of jumping around to different mm-hmm. points in the galaxy. I, I just... I'm just kind of geeking out about mm-hmm. the fact that they've gotten it right here. Mm-hmm. You know, there isn't just some magical, oh, yeah, we can instantly communicate with Tarn Vedra, you know, in the Andromeda galaxy or wherever they're at. You can't get that instant mm-hmm. communication. And I thought that was a really cool concept. But then at the same time, uh, they've been flying around trying to reestablish the Commonwealth. These are with civilizations, right? Yeah. I mean, why is it that none of these other worlds that they've already uh, spoken with have any clue what's going on. I mean, why do they not have any of the current news and information? Why do they not have uh, some way to get that mail to them? Well, I'm thinking about it, uh, you know, it's, to me, it kind of gives you a viewpoint of the galaxy from the same standpoint as you had, like in Ports of Call during the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. You had merchant ships that would come in, and they would bring news from whatever part of the world that they came from. So you had some news from certain parts of the world, depending on what ships came in, but you didn't have a complete picture. Maybe this is a place where they see a lot more traffic, and so they have a, a you know a more complete view of what's going on mm-hmm. in various parts of the world. And so you can you can hook into that and kind of get a, a snapshot of what's been going on over the last, you know, month, six months, whatever, and kind of catch up on your news. I, I think it's a, I, I dare say it's almost kind of a romanticized view of how you get information. So they go to these different worlds and yeah, they have no concept of, you know, who's coming to them, the Andromeda. They know what the Commonwealth was, mm-hmm. but maybe they don't know what's going on in other parts of the galaxies. So this guy shows up new. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Cool. Commonwealth has been gone for 300 years to us. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we'll listen to you. Maybe there's other worlds that have already listened to him too. Mm-hmm. We just haven't heard about it yet. I would worry about about sending mail to somebody. We think mail is slow now. I mean, three years it took for this message to get to Becca. Yeah, you know. I mean, what if Sid really was in a very serious circumstance? Uh, say his life was in jeopardy. He needed her help. Well, forget it. You know, yeah. I mean, don't even bother sending that message out because she's not going to get it for three years, you know, and it just she just so happened to be close enough to a to a, a postal hub that she was able to, to get that one. Well, I, I, it, it comes back to the analogy of of sea life in the 19th century. A family member dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might not get the mail of, of their death. You know, if you were out to sea for a year. <laughs> mm-hmm. You you didn't you know, they died a year ago, tough. <laughs> yeah. You know that's just how life was. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And I guess we're just spoiled right now in this day and age. Like you said of earlier, we just instant information. Like um, 
you and I were corresponding earlier today, and there was at one point where there was like an hour between text messages. And it's like, what have you been doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I see. You're absolutely right. Um, take this back to when this show was made. Uh, let's, let's say it was late 2000, early 2001, probably. Communication technology was nowhere near what it is today. No. It was, it was definitely a lot better than what it was back in the... Well, you were sending the, emails in 2000, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah, there was email. Yeah. Um, not everybody had that email on their phone. True. Now, if you send me an email, I get it instantly. Right. Um, back then, it was, when I get around to coming back to my computer and checking my email... And after listening to the, to the dial tone and then the handshake and the connection and everything... Yeah. When you logged into Juno.com or whatever it was that you used. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I, I was one of them. I know there were a ton of people who... Checked their email maybe once a month. Right. <laughs> you know? I knew a few of those. Yeah, because people weren't using them all that much. Yeah. And so it was like you check your email every day, well, you're just going to be disappointed because there's nothing there. Yeah. So I'm just thinking when this was made, communication was different. Uh, maybe a little bit more like what's going on in this episode. Yeah. Um, if you're in the right spot at the right time, the technology's there. But other people, well, maybe not. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it's it's really, now that we're talking about it, I'm, I'm really appreciating this show for what they're portraying in this. If, if we're reading it correctly. Mm -hmm. If this is how the universe works, if this is how communication is done, that's a really cool concept because, honestly, the reality is in space, you don't have instant communication like what any of us in the world today enjoy. You know, there's a satellite system that keeps us connected at all times. But you go, you know half a light second or half a light minute mm -hmm. or a light hour out mm -hmm. from the earth and suddenly the delay becomes a real issue yeah well so, it's like uh the mars rover yeah they see it's about to hit a rock um they send the message for that thing to adjust course by the time we get the image it might already have been too late yeah. but then they got to wait for that that message to get back to the rover and then you got to wait for those images to come back to see if the course correction uh, made any difference or not. Right. I forget what the delay is between Earth and Mars. Yeah, you're right. It's a significant delay. You have to plan a lot of moves ahead. You know, it's the ultimate chess game, mm -hmm. <laughs> trying to move that thing around. Right. But yeah, that is the reality of communication in space. And unless you, unless you create for yourself a mulligan like Star Trek did... Mm -hmm. Saying, oh, we have this magical subspace communication. Mm -hmm. Now we can communicate instantly. Yeah, that's a that's a you know a workaround that you don't have to explain. It allows you to communicate in real time. Mm -hmm. The reality is that that does not exist. Mm -hmm. And I think I think it's really cool that they've they've kept to that in this universe. Is is what it seems like. Yeah. Another bit of technology. Um, I think it's interesting that we just had in all great Neptune's ocean. We had all of that exposition about the Force Lance, and immediately it comes into play again. Yeah, yeah, uh, We've never seen that before until the last episode, and then again, somebody tries to use someone else's Force Lance, and it puts them on the ground. Yeah. Um, interestingly, though, remember in that episode, Tyr, it knocked him unconscious, and he had loss of memory. 
Yes. The last thing he remembered was talking to Dylan in the hydroponics. Yeah. This guy, it just knocks him to the ground, and he's like, whoa. Flash is a powerful drug. Okay. It, well, Flash, combined with the fact... He does mention he is bioengineered. Okay. He did make that... Once you go bioengineered, you never go back. Okay. So, yeah, he's been tampered with. Um, he's on Flash. Mm-hmm. I, I'm firmly convinced he's on Flash. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's a minor shock to the system for him. He just bounces right back. Okay. All right, I'll buy that. All right, so are we going to talk about John Delancey? Because we really haven't talked about Uncle Sid at all. Yeah. Or Sam yeah. Prophet, you know, right. whichever you prefer here. Mm-hmm. Um, for one thing, from the moment he steps on the screen, mm-hmm. I'm awaiting the double cross. <laughs> you know, I really could not watch this episode and for a moment think that he wasn't in it for himself or looking for some angle or looking to double cross Becca in some way, shape, form, or fashion. Mm-hmm. Because... It's his character. Right. I see his face, and instantly I'm thinking, Q. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then just the sound of his voice, the way he talks, the way his manner, you know. You knew he was rotten from the get-go. Mm-hmm. You knew he was playing Becca mm-hmm. for something. Right. Um, and it was that, it's that nature of him that also makes him suspicious of everyone else, yeah. including Becca. I mean, that's the whole problem here, is that Becca has not done anything Right. But he has such a suspicious nature that he just automatically assumes that Becca's out to get him, too. Right. So he's got to get the jump on her before she can get it on him. Yeah. And I just think there there could not have been a better uh, actor that they could have put into this role mm-hmm. to play Uncle Sid, mm-hmm. to play Sam Prophet, is John Delancey. I think he, he just fills that role. Mm-hmm. And it's so much so that I want to see him in future episodes. And I don't know that he is. I I, I do know he's in a future episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to see him at least one more time. But I just really wish they they could have worked him in into a story arc that would have been a bit more dynamic, a mm-hmm. bit more for something uh, something for him to do in this universe. You know, uh, I did mention I reached out to uh, Robert Hewitt Wolf and to Ethel Anvar, and uh, you know, my question was: Were there any plans for you know a, a larger role to bring? Um, John Delancey back in that role of Uncle Sid. Uh, and he said, yeah, you know, that was mm-hmm. that was kind of his intent. But, you know, obviously things transpired that prevented him from being able to do it as, as he would have liked. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it would have been great to, to really see him take on a, a bigger role in this universe, I would think. And I'm, I'm almost disappointed that we're only going to get it to see him for two episodes. Mm-hmm. But still, we got to see him in this one. I, I liked him in the in the role that he played. So here's here's one more question about uh, about Becca. There at the end when when she when she tells Sid that she's already sent this out and it's uh, all to the to these law enforcement agencies and it's to be opened upon her death. So was Becca bluffing? You know, that's a good question. Uh, honestly, Sid could find out real quick. Cuz she said she charged it on his card. Which, by the way, I'm so glad to see that we've gone from uh, credit card technology now to collectible pogs oh, yeah. for uh, currency. Mm-hmm. That was so great to see that. But yeah, so she uses the, the, the disc, yeah. uh, li- unlimited gilders. Um, Is a gilder more than a clot lube? <laughs> you got me on that one. 
I'm not as well versed as you are on the, oh. on e- the economics of the Andromeda universe. Okay. So in any case, yeah, she's used that. All he would have to do is punch up the record, right? Mm-hmm. And and see if she actually did charge or not. Yeah. I'm just saying that it would be a really really easy check. Yeah. This could really spell trouble for Becca. It might. I mean. I, I'm thinking there's no way that she could have, because all she's doing is, as soon as she discovers this video, she's, she just, she can't believe it. She's in shock. Yeah. Immediately, Sid comes up on her view screen, and, and they, and then they start going at it. When in that time, since she knows about what happened, when did she have time to send this off? So I never saw her swipe the disc on the Mario. Does the Mario even have an interface for that disc? I mean, the visa station on, on the Maru. <laughs> no, I, and I think you're down. I think you've got the crux of it is the fact that she's just finding this out herself. Yeah. There is no way she could have put this plan into play. Right. How stupid is Sid or Sam Prophet in that he doesn't check the records? Well, he didn't have enough time. She was going right into the in star. that moment. But you log off, you go check, you know, two seconds later, you find out you log back into the ship and you steer it back toward the sun, <laughs> you know, is what I'm thinking. It would be the natural progression. Well, Beck is going to Beck is going to change the command codes. OK. OK, we'll accept that that's I know. that's going to happen. I think it was just he she called his bluff or no, well, she, 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 she bluffed. And he he couldn't call it right because there wasn't enough time right. Um, okay, let her die. If she's not bluffing, I'm screwed. If if she is bluffing, well, honestly though, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, how far are they from the sun? They're still you know they're a minute out or mm-hmm. so. Hold please, just a second. <laughs> do do do. Check on it. Come back on. Yeah, you're bluffing. Have a, you yeah. know, enjoy the last 30 seconds of your life. Right. <laughs> uh, it, it is kind of a plot hole. Well, how close are they? I mean, do they still have that close range of uh, communication? I mean, maybe it would have taken five minutes for that information to get out there. Hey, that's a valid point. That's a valid point. Yeah, maybe mm-hmm. he doesn't have the, as instant access. Maybe he can't verify in a in a rapid amount of time. We do take that for granted. Yeah, it was just too big of a chance for him to take. I'm I'm thinking... Sid's a smart guy. He probably is 97% sure that Becca's bluffing. Yeah. But he can't risk that 3%. Right. Too much at stake. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's a good call. And then, you know, basically, let's, let's talk about Becca. Okay. And the life that she's had. I mean, uh, we have the whole clockwork orange scene where she's in the apparatus and they're dropping the, the eye drops in the eye and everything. Um Sid's saying a lot of things about Becca's dad. Mm-hmm. How much of it do we do we believe? I mean, is is Ignatius, is he really this bad of a guy? Was he this bad of a father? Becca obviously doesn't hold him mm-hmm. as being that bad. Up and through that whole scene, she holds her father, you know, on, on high. Maybe not on a pedestal, but she has a very high opinion of mm-hmm. him. Right. But he's saying all of these things that are, wow, this is, this doesn't sound like a good guy. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like you would be a very good father at all. Mm-hmm. And it isn't until we get to the end of the story when you, the, you mentioned Trance is consoling Becca. They're, right. they're back on the ship. Becca acknowledges that, yeah, in in the end, it was bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he was not the father that she holds dear. Mm-hmm. 
it, that's got to be tough. And I, I was thinking, you know, that's there's a lot of people out there that have to that have to deal with that kind of situation. You know, a family member gets sick, or a family member has a an addiction, whatever it is, alcohol, mm-hmm. drugs, whatever the case may be. Flash, flash, yeah. Uh, and, and they have to deal with that, and it, it speaks a lot about Becca's character in that she can she can kind of maybe not gloss that over, but she can see past that mm-hmm. and can see the good that was her father before he falls into the addiction to Flash that apparently he does succumb to. Well, I think. Even kids, um, especially when they start getting into their uh, preteens and adolescence, they're they're not they're not blind. They're not stupid. And if their parents really are that unloving and and just that terrible of people, they're going to figure that out. Yeah. And especially at that age, they're going to hold a lot of resentment. Mm-hmm. And if things don't turn around fast, they're going to hang on to that for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Uh, what we have with Becca is someone who adores her father saw the things that happened to him later in his life but that's what she sees that these are things that happened to him later in his life they're not who he was right we see in the video sid is the one that is conniving deceitful yes and and ignatius is the one who is saying this is not right Mm -hmm. i am not part of this i may be a a smuggler and i may be a, a thief or whatever he says but i'm not a murderer Right. Sid says, well, you are now. Yeah. Because you're in this with me. Yeah. Guilty by association. Sure. And maybe that was what started uh, his downfall. Maybe uh, having to deal with knowing what he knew. There you go. And and now Becca has something to focus on and say, well, yes, from this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's that's very good. So if anything, this has probably helped her as a character, this whole situation. Mm -hmm. So our quote for this episode, this is an anonymous Calderon proverb. Uh, circa Commonwealth year 500. So this is a long time ago from the standpoint that we're seeing this universe. Wealth is too precious to be entrusted to the rich. Well, my thought on this, I I don't want to go too deep into this because I don't want to upset the 1% of listeners that are out there. There's not a whole lot you can, you can pick through on this. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a true statement. Power corrupts and, and what corrupts a person faster than money. Honestly, yeah, and we we see that in Uncle Sid, Sid uh, Sam Prophet. Mm-hmm. Um, I really don't have a whole lot to say about it, other than it's it, it seems like a very accurate statement. I'm not saying that if you're wealthy, you're corrupt, mm-hmm. um, or that you can't be trusted. Right? There's a lot of evidence of people out there that have a lot of money that make very charitable decisions. Mm-hmm. Does that mean they're good people? We don't know. Because everyone kind of keeps to themselves. <laughs> right. You know, they make generous donations. They they do what good they can. Can you say that they're trustworthy based on what they're doing, you know, in the public eye? Mm, not necessarily. If anything, uh, the wealthy are the ones that you kind of have to watch the most. Mm-hmm. Because they do have a lot of power. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm completely as much in agreement with this uh, based on this episode. Because wealth is too precious to be entrusted to the rich. This episode is about Sid. Um, And yeah, he's extremely wealthy, and he's extremely corrupt. But as far as we can tell, he has always been extremely corrupt. He has not always been extremely wealthy. You know, I want to stop you there. Do we know he is corrupt? I mean, he's he's paranoid. Yeah. As someone I know likes to say a lot, uh, 
just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get me. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. He's paranoid. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wealth will do that to you. Yeah. Whether you're guilty of something or not, wealth can do that. Do we know he is a corrupt individual? He has this one thing that's been held over his head for a very long time. He's built a successful life. Mm-hmm. He has a great deal that is about to happen. And now someone from his past that is part of the family that has held this thing over his head for so long now randomly just shows up again. He he, he made a bad decision in, in, in Sigma and he killed all those people. That's a horrible thing to do. You know what? Now that I said that, it's the whole point is mute. You can't kill that many people and not be a corrupt and bad <laughs> well, individual. And that I've, just yeah. erase that whole last two no, minutes of rant. But, yeah, but I'm but with, with that though, look at his whole attitude about the whole thing. Uh, let's go back one episode. All Great Neptune's Ocean. President Lee, he he felt such extreme remorse over what over the atrocities that he had committed that he was real. He was willing to just lay it all out there. He wanted to have. A confessional and just let it all be yeah. known. He's like, look, these are the terror. He wanted to let the whole world, the whole galaxy know yeah. what he did. Now, there were other people behind him that made sure that that didn't happen. Yes. Okay, but that's a man who has remorse over over the atrocities that he's committed. Right. Sid is not. Sid is a man who is willing to kill his own, um, what he considers to be his niece. Yes. He's willing to to kill her off in order to protect himself. Yeah. That that is not a remorseful individual. You're right. You're right. That is a terrible corrupt individual. Give me a second to think about it and I, and I I will agree with you wholeheartedly. All right. Hold all on. Right. Well, yes, you're absolutely okay, see, right. Okay, all right, we're there. <laughs> <laughs> Something that came to my mind when I was watching this is I'm I I don't want to uh put any particular individuals or businesses on the spot here but it it does happen there are sometimes large corporations that um that just they they kind of seem to just take over uh really big businesses and then sometimes a lot of the small businesses suffer because they just don't have the buying power they don't have um just just all of the capital that these these big companies have that's what's going on here with transgalactic uh, they're merging with this other superpower, and then all the small time is gone. Yeah, and so I mean, you know, this quote is just is just talking about this sort of this sort of commerce. The the rich get richer, and then the poor starve to death. Yeah, and not not taking a position on this, but this is what the this is the struggle that Becca uh, sees going on. This is something that she, her father, and to to her understanding, Sid, they were all against. These these big corporations, this this big power, this big company, um, and now Sid's part of it. Yep. And so she's just kind of seeing that whole that whole world, her whole way of living, kind of crumble. I mean, she's got this good gig on the Andromeda right now. Mm-hmm. What if that falls through? Well, what does she have to fall back on? Small time shipping. Yeah, and, 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 uh, and now there's no room for that. Yeah, yeah. No, but I mean that that is that is what we see taking place today yeah i mean any anybody that's been in a small town that's had walmart move in see i didn't want to say walmart but i'm i won't shy from okay it. great <laughs> anywhere where walmart's moved in mm-hmm. now, now suddenly you have far less small time business yeah 
And yeah. that, is, that is just the way we see things happening today. Mm-hmm. It was happening in 2000. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it, it stands to reason that 3,000 years in the future, people with money would do the exact same thing. Right. And that is, that is exactly what I thought of. That's exactly what came to my mind when I watched this episode. Walmart? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There you go. But, you know, I mean, I guess we, we had some disagreements. We had some agreements. We sort of came to agreement. Uh, but overall, what did you think about this episode? I, there's a couple of points about this episode that I really, really like. And first of all, John DeLancey mm-hmm. is just, he's a brilliant actor. Um, in this role as Uncle Sid, I think he does a really good job with it. And, of, of course, in the other roles that I've seen him in, specifically thinking about his Star Trek roles, you mm-hmm. know, SQ. Um, he's a great actor and of all the guest stars that we've seen so far i like him the best <laughs> mm-hmm. i mean that is hands down he's he's my favorite so far for the season one uh the last scene that we see of him um on the on the video screen there's a change in his face as as, as becca has put her bluff out there and he's accepting it there, he, there's a, a slight change to his face, and immediately I thought of Q when I saw it because it was just such a Q look, mm-hmm. and it was so gratifying to see that in Andromeda. Mm-hmm. You know, in, and I know it's different from Star Trek, but I am a Star Trek fan, mm-hmm. and to so so to see this actor do his thing, you know, on camera in this show, it was just really gratifying for me, and I appreciated it. Two. The story with Becca for this episode is so much better than what we got in The Ties That Blind. Mm, yeah, yeah. And now I feel like I know more about Becca as a character, and I, I like her as a character. Mm-hmm. She's had a rough childhood. We already knew that. But now we know the the vehicle that drug her father down. Mm-hmm. We know kind of a little bit about the events that led to his downfall. And and she had to see that happen. She had to watch that. And now she knows a little bit more about what led to that, as we've talked about. And then on top of it, she saw what happened to her dad. And so she took very positive steps to keep that from happening to her. She she mentions when she's tweaking on the flash, she's she's saying, I didn't I didn't drink alcohol, yeah, I didn't right. smoke, I didn't do that, I didn't do any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But now it's in me. Mm-hmm. And what if I'm going to end up just like him? Yeah. That's her thought. Yeah. And that's such a scary, scary thought for anybody that's in that position. And, and to see her going through that, I thought she she acted that fairly well, mm-hmm. I thought. And so now we're going to see her going forward with that hanging over her head. And, and we're going to revisit this later on. So for those two reasons... Uh, I thought this was a very good episode. Very enjoyable to watch. I mean, it's a little bit campy. I, I mentioned her tough girl lines and whatnot, <laughs> but they came at the right time. Mm-hmm. I laughed. Yeah, that's you know, what she it, is. It is what she is, mm-hmm. and, and it was enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And the whole garage sale thing, we didn't even talk about Grask. Grask? Yeah, Grask. <laughs> we didn't even have to talk about that character. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just such a bit role, and there were lessons to be learned by what Andromeda went through with that, but we yeah. don't even have to talk about Buyer it. beware. Buyer beware, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, but this was such a great Becca episode. And then with John Delancey as Uncle Sid, you, all you have to do is just watch those two on the screen, and it's a great episode. Yeah, I think this, this episode almost could have been made, uh, and I think they tried their hardest, without having Dylan, Tyr, or Harper, or Rev in it. 
They did a good job of it. Um, I mean, that is such a subplot. It's like a sub-subplot. Yeah. I mean, it. what's lower than subplot? Footnote. Uh, yeah. It's a footnote. <laughs> really. It really is. I mean, this is just... And trance is there a lot, but it's not a trance episode. Right. This episode is completely about Becca. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier this was better. This was a better episode than The Ties That Blind. I can't believe when you said that, that was when I realized. Because I was getting... I was preparing myself to say, finally, we get a, a Becca episode. Oh, except we did have The Ties That we Blind. We already had one. Yeah. But that wasn't a particularly good one. This one was. Um, she. Uh, one thing that I had in my note was... You ever see somebody try to, on screen or on stage, try to act drunk? <laughs> yeah. It's it's really very difficult to put to pull off. Right. Convincingly. And in this, she's not drunk, she's tweaking, but it's still kind of the same thing. You're 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 heightened. Your senses are heightened. You have to act yeah. a different way. Yeah. Not and, yourself. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, it's just, and I I felt like she did a pretty good job of that. Mm -hmm. Um which is really hard. It's really, really, really hard to do. Yeah. The the other thing, you were talking so high on uh, on Q. John Delancey. I'm sorry. See, <laughs> the, I've already made my point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's extremely unfair because he, because John Delancey is a really good actor and he nailed this role. So this is what I'm about to say is completely unfair to him. But all I see is Q. You know, and, and that's not his fault. That, I get that's probably my fault. Um, but not to take anything away from from his performance because he did do a really, really good job. And I, I think it's probably kind of unfortunate for him that anytime anyone sees him, he's Q. Yeah. You know, and you just you have those actors sometimes that you see them, and and that's all they are. Uh, there was a sort of a little. In the late '90s, there was a, a remake of sort of a War of the Worlds thing. It was on. It was on. It was a made-for-TV movie, and they had a whole bunch of completely unknown actors playing all the parts. They were all playing like uh, um, extraterrestrial es experts, and they were newscasters and stuff like that. They were reporting this alien invasion, the same kind of deal like with War of the Worlds. Yeah. And and then they said, okay, and we have on location such and such, our correspondent, and they cut to him, and it's John Delancey. And I'm like, okay, now everybody knows that this is not real. Yeah. <laughs> because Q is doing the report. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway. Well, it, we and we already kind of have, have had to deal with that, because honestly, we're 11 episodes in, and yeah. I have a hard time seeing Dylan Hunt as Dylan, or Kevin Sorbo as Dylan Hunt. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing Kevin Sorbo... Has been Hercules, now captain of a starship. Yeah. You know, and and I still, I cannot fully see him in the role of Dylan Hunt, starship captain. Yeah, that's a good point. High guard captain. That's a good point. And it's not, I, I hadn't thought of that because I didn't follow Hercules. Um, I know, well, I, I know, either. I know you didn't either specifically, but I mean, I've watched this all the way through and I've been a fan of it for such a long time that when I think Sorbo, I think Hunt. And probably you're right. Most people, first thing when they think Sorbo, they think Hercules. Yeah. And but for for Delancey, it was I've you know all those years of watching him as Q. Mm-hmm. 
and now and to he, see you know, him and as you, someone do you else. Realize and, he only did maybe a, a total of maybe ten Star Trek episodes. Yeah, but I watched Q. all those episodes over and over, over and, and over, over, over again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and I, I, I would I would venture to guess that somebody that never watched Star Trek but sees this episode, they're gonna be like, Hey, I'm, I've seen that guy. Mm-hmm. Because he is so iconic. Mm-hmm. They may not have watched it themselves, but their dad or whoever, their mom or whoever followed Star Trek, they did, mm-hmm. and they saw him in that role. Right. So, yeah, it is hard to separate him from that role of being Q. But if you do, you know, if, if, you, if you draw that line and you look at this role as Uncle Sid, you said it. Mm-hmm. He, he does a great job in that role. Yeah. And, you know, and that's that's a completely unfair point on my part. And and I apologize to him. But it's one we have and, to make because we're, you know. Yeah. We're just the guys watching. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but it doesn't. It didn't take away from my enjoyment of the show. Uh, if anything, the first time I saw it, I was like, hey, it's Q. <laughs> you know, what what sort of fun space magic is he going to make this week? You know, and <laughs> there there was none. But it was still, it was good to see him mortal again yeah but anyway but that's just that's just a little bit of what i thought and it's a little bit of what ethan thought but we would really love to hear your guys's thoughts um ethan where's a good place that they can uh they could email us they can email us at drive back the night podcast at gmail.com we're also on facebook and twitter using the handle and drop it a pod on both of those places and we would like to say we've been getting some uh, some really good feedback on our social media especially twitter uh and we've got some email Yep, and we really enjoy the uh, the positive feedback that you guys have given to us. Yeah, keep it coming. Yeah, so we just let us know your thoughts, uh, different things. If you you notice these things in uh, some of these episodes that we've discussed, and you want to put your two cents in, or maybe for an upcoming episode. Yeah, be sure and, and let us know what you look forward to. If there's an episode coming up, you know, tweet us about it. Because um, it may be something that we don't even give thought to yeah and maybe we should yeah so yeah you know clue us in as to what you could kind of like to hear on future episodes our home is podbean we're uh, andromedaseries.podbean.com we're on itunes uh you can find us there in the itunes store uh drive back the night podcast uh be sure and leave us some stars or some feedback uh review we'd certainly appreciate that big thanks to our friend tim kemmerly for again giving us his uh his voice for the opening quote as he has done all season And we are an Age of Geek production. That's www.ageofgeek.com. And we hope that you'll join us back here again next week as we discuss the episode, The Mathematics of Tears. Tears.